I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Douglas Brinkley, one of our nation's top historians, about his new book, Silent Spring Revolution. John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and the Great Environmental Awakening. The book came out November 15, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on November 29, 2022. Enjoy. I want to thank everybody for coming. In particular, I want to thank all of our wonderful sponsors who make today possible. If you're here as a guest, it's your sponsor who paid for your wonderful coffee, juice, breakfast, and book for this incredible venue, the best possible venue for a book event like this. Our sponsors today are the Crow Foundation. Uh, so glad that Harlan can be here. Wells Fargo Private Bank, my great friend Ken Rabinowitz. Uh, SMU Cox Alumni Association, Kevin Knox, always a great supporter. Security National Bank, Gary Ward and his team. Uh, Briggs Freeman, or Robbie Briggs, uh, Briggs Freeman, uh, over here. Been a great sponsor all year. Swinerton Construction, Jeff Blakely and his folks. Overland Partners, Robin Blakely and his folks. PwC, Byron Carlock. So glad Byron's in town. Poor guy, he's stuck on jury duty for JP Court. You can imagine anything worse than that. And last but not least, uh, my law firm, the Shackelford Law Firm. So uh, enjoy uh, the books and uh, the program this morning. Doug's an old friend. We've been doing this for a long time, through every one of his books for about the last decade. But anyway, I now get to introduce Doug, who needs no introduction, but he deserves one. Uh, Doug is a professor of history at Rice University. He lives in Austin. He is truly a Renaissance man. His specialty is presidential history, but it's also environmental history. It's also music. Doug has just been nominated for two Grammy Awards. Uh, so pretty fantastic. He's written a lot about music. Uh, but uh, he is the premier presidential environmental historian. Nobody else is close. Uh, he loves coming to Dallas. He's got a lot of great friends in this audience. Uh, please welcome Doug Brinkley. Thank you, Thomas. I really enjoy being here. It's the first time I've been in this amazing room. What a great place to hold an event like this. So thank you all for getting up and coming to hear me and getting my book. <laughs> all right, well, let's, let's get right to it, Doug. When we think of the American conservation movement, we think of the people who were the centerpiece of your two prior environmental books, Theodore Roosevelt, who's, of course, the godfather and king of the national parks, and then Franklin Roosevelt, whose Civilian Conservation Corps planted millions of trees uh, during the Great Depression. But this is the third in the trilogy about presidents we know well, but we didn't realize what their role was in the conservation movement. In fact, if you read many biographies of John F. Kennedy or Johnson or Nixon, they barely mention their role. So, Doug, why was it such a well-kept secret in the history world as to the role that those three 
presidents played in the environmental movement? Well, we've had three conservation slash environmental movements in the United States. One was Theodore Roosevelt, 1901 to 1909. The second was with FDR, 1933 to 45. And the third is what I call the long 60s, uh, which encompasses the presidencies of Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. In order to be a conservation or environmental movement, it comes from the ground up. It comes from people demanding um, things, perhaps not with TR. Theodore Roosevelt majored in wildlife biology at Harvard, spent his life writing books about the natural world. Um, and so it was easy for him to ele elevate that in, in importance. A presence can only do so much. Uh, he created the U.S. Forest Service, today's uh, progenitor of U.S. Fish and Wildlife of today, saved places, Theodore Roosevelt, like the Grand Canyon and Devil's Tower and Muir Woods. FDR was a forester, and he was more worried about our ravaged landscapes during the Great Depression um, and the need to plant trees. They During the, the work programs of the New Deal, planted almost 3 billion trees across the country. FDR established 800 state parks. Uh, most of the ones in Texas come from that era. And, um, and then the third wave was triggered by, as I write here, a, uh, the post-World War II um, boom of our economy. Uh, but during the war, a lot of products got quickly rushed to market, um, particularly atomic bomb and DDT. And there started becoming a rearguard action of saying, are these, are, are, how dangerous is fallout from a Nevada test being blown up, bombs, and you know, we were blowing them up willy-nilly in the Marshall Islands, Nevada. And as DDT, which used to blanket planes with crop dusters, would put them over crops, is DDT bad for human beings? And is it wiping out species like eagles and the like? And, that starts go, coming to a forefront right when John F. Kennedy becomes president. And to answer your question, Talmadge, I think Kennedy, you know, we think of him the Cuban Missile Crisis, Berlin, and the rest, but his biggest accomplishment, as Ted Sorensen said, was the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, where he decided that uh, listening to grassroots uh, ban the bomb testing movements, Kennedy convinced Khrushchev and in, in McMillan, the UK, to ban the testing of nuclear weapons or underwater weapons, and that ban exists to today. So it's really a, it's often up until my book seen from just a foreign policy success for Kennedy, but it ha had a huge ecological ramifications. Think now if Russia with the Ukraine could just start testing, blowing up nuclear weapons in Siberia or something, and then the fallout of it. So it put the genie of nuclear power halfway back in the bottle, that one Kennedy act. Mm -hmm. Now, the title, Silent Spring Revolution, is obviously tied to Rachel Carson's famous book, Silent Spring, which came out in 1962. You call Ms. Carson the Paul Revere of Earth stewardship, an environmental leader and United States Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas compared her book to Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. So what were Ms. Carson's key traits that caused her to start this revolution? What, what, what did she have in her toolkit to be able to spark this revolution? Once in a while, there's a writer who really makes a difference. Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle and Theodore Roosevelt started cleaning up meat factories. Or 
Thomas Paine writes Common Sense and it becomes part of the American Revolution. Rachel Carson's Silent Spring out in 1962 gave birth to the environmental movement. A lot of the reason why it did was her street credibility. She had been born in Pennsylvania by along the Allegheny where it was dirty. The river turned dirty. It was soot in the air. But she loved the natural world. And she ended up, after going to a women's school in Pittsburgh for college, Chatham, it's called today, um, she went to Woods Hole, which is in Massachusetts and Cape Cod. And that's ground zero for people wanting to study marine species. We in Texas today, thankfully, I think University of Texas has Port Aransas Marine Station or, or Texas A&M has one in Corpus Christi. But back in the early 20th century, Woods Hole was everything. She went there, studied. She got her advanced degrees in zoology at Johns Hopkins. Uh, she started becoming a columnist about the oceans and, and fish for the uh, Baltimore Sun. During World War II, she was hired by the U.S. government uh, working um, to do radio broadcast about the natural world during the war and then start writing a, a, a bunch of pamphlets, books that were called Conservation in Action. She was a very elegant writer. That was her gift, perfect prose, um, and then deep scientific integrity. She got worried as early as 1945 about DDT, which DDT incidentally was a great thing, a miracle in the war because we could spray our soldiers in the Pacific. It would kill lice, it would kill mosquitoes. Um, but they- Stop there was, malaria. Stop malaria. But there was evidence coming out that it wasn't a sustainable product, that it was causing more harm than good and what it was doing to fish and birds in particular, and therefore potentially humans. And she started after she writes three sea trilogy books. We consider in the literature world, she wrote the three best books on oceans ever. Um, the Sea Around Us and The Edge of the Sea. I mean, they're just remarkable books. But by the late 50s, she started writing about DDT and why it was dangerous. And it came at a time when the Supreme Court held a case. Uh, a woman named Marjorie Spock was an organic farmer in Long Island, and she sued and went all the way to the Supreme Court because she said, I have a birthright. I want to grow organic produce, and yet Suffolk County Agricultural Pest Control and the U.S. Department of Agriculture or blanket spraying my farm with DDT. Who controls the airspace over a land? And you know, it's an obvious. Some of your lawyers here. It's a you know, it's a you're in law school. That's a very vigorous you know case from a lot of different angles. She lost. Only in dissent by losing. William O. Douglas wrote on the Supreme Court this remarkable dissent in saying that she actually had the right to be an organic farmer and that DD, new evidence is DDT's poison, and you know, on and on. She took all of that evidence from the court case and used it in her book. And when it came out in 62, it shocked everybody. John F. Kennedy, as president, appointed a presidential scientific commission to look into her anti-DDT findings. And uh, they found out that indeed Rachel Carson was correct in her book. Yet it took a decade. It doesn't get banned in North America uh, until 1972 when Richard Nixon and um, first head of the Environmental Protection Agency, Ruckelshaus, bans it. Now, every great book typically has a great hook, something at the very start that grabs you. And, and all of Rachel Carson's books were 
top New York Times bestseller. So these were not obscure books. They sold well, highly publicized. But her hook in this book was called A Fable for Tomorrow. It totally grabbed the reader. What was in that fable that was such a wake-up call? One of the reasons it became controversial, Silent Spring, because while the book was based on scientific evidence, this fable for tomorrow was her putting, I would call her literary gift to the forefront. And she was imagining communities that were void of um, of flora and fauna. No bird song, no fish in the streams, the leaves are dying on the trees. Uh, Picture an industrial kind of suburban wasteland. And she wrote it very powerfully, if you read it. I mean, Bob Dylan has a song like A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, where he throws out all this imagery of what's gonna happen to the world. Well, this was in this dystopian introduction to, to her book. So once you got in it, you thought, oh my God. And at the same time the book came out, the group, the Sierra Club, um, was, was using Ansel Adams' beautiful photos of nature. If any of you have seen an Ansel Adams, they're spectacular. Usually no people in them. Unbelievable black and whites next to the uh, different blighted landscape with banners like, which, which America do you want? And uh, that was happening right when Silent Spring came too. So there was starting to be these chugging of, of a coalition coming that were demanding clean air, clean water, no DDT, um, rivers and, um, that should be swimmable, lakes swimmable, the need for saving the last round of national parks, which Lyndon and Lady Bird Johnson in particular do. And so it all started becoming a, um, it became the birth of ecology, the word environment, uh, earth science, uh, ecology, I mean, um, uh, ecosystems, all of this was starting to become, uh, become mainstreamed in the early 1960s. Now, part of the human drama here is that while she wrote Silent Spring, Rachel Carson was battling cancer. Her days were numbered. It was like Ulysses S. Grant writing his memoirs and finishing them three days before he died. Uh, she died two years after the book came out, but it really was a race against time. Talk about the incredible effort for her to even complete this book. She was diagnosed with breast cancer and um, was going through intense radiation treatment, spent time at Cleveland Clinic and Mayo. Uh, she was ba- basically um, on it, living off on borrowed time, and so she raced against the clock, as, as Talmadge puts it, you know, really well, um, to get this done. She did. It created for the chemical industry a feeling that Rachel Carson was putting her own angst of, of radiation into her book and was exaggerating some of the negative effects of chemicals. The thing to realize in 62 is there is no not environmental protection agency. That doesn't get created till Nixon does it in 1970. So um, there, most of these pesticides or chemicals, agricultural fertilizers, weren't being federally regulated. So Silent Spring, while at its heart's about DDT, it's about something larger, and it's about the need to uh, regulate um, uh, chemical manufacturers. And so they went up in arms against the book, and, uh, and, and the, the accusations against her was that she was, she was fictionalizing um, things, and it wasn't pure science. It was 
what today they would call junk science. So she was caught in the crosshairs of that. She would go testify all the time on Capitol Hill to Senate um, committees. But she had many powerful friends in the media world, most famously Eric Severide of CBS News, who did an hour prime time with her. Uh, Severide came from Minnesota, was a hunt fish outdoorsman from Minnesota who loved Rachel Carson. So she caught a very big media wave. And when she died, people were trying to continue the, the work of Rachel Carson. Really, the idea of whether you're at SMU or I teach at Rice, the beginning of even having the word environmental being bandied around a university begins with Rachel Carson. After her death, a group called Envirom um, the Environmental Defense Fund was created under the slogan, Sue the Bastards. <laughs> and, and that became the really beginning of hard, tough environmental law um, where, you know, you sue, um, you know, for um, on pollution uh, mitigation issues and the like. So there wasn't even a thing called environmental law in 62. I mean, that was all be emerged by the late 60s. Mm -hmm. Now, besides Rachel Carson and the three presidents, there are other main characters in the book, huge influences on the environmental movement, some of whom had started in the previous century. Uh, we think about the environment. One of the first people who pops into your mind is Thoreau, who was such a source of inspiration. How did Thoreau play a role in the uh, Silent Spring Revolution? Well, Henry David Thoreau's Walden still is one of the classic books about his time there, Walden Pond at, in Concord. But he wrote an essay called Walking, in which he asks the question, Thoreau, he said, or he says, in wildness is the salvation of the world. In wildness is salvation of the world. And he argues that every city needs a green belt or a township park, and that we must save big wilderness reserves, forest, jungles, and all, if we're not going to just destroy the planet. Uh, and, and that um, out of that, writing of him. He also wrote a book called Cape Cod, which was one of John F. Kennedy's favorite books. It was his mother's favorite book. And um, he wrote about the Concord and Merrimack Rivers and the Maine Woods and the like. So there became a post-World War II Thoreauvian movement, um, and people would even call themselves urban Thoreaus. And Thoreau wrote the essay on civil disobedience that Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King were so attracted to. So uh, this revitalization of Thoreau had an impact on U.S. senators, on Supreme Court justices. It, he, uh, Walden became mandatory reading again. And people start asking, which I could ask any of you, like, what is your Walden Pond? What place in the natural world do you personally identify with the most? Might be your grandmother's farm. It might be a lake you go fishing at. It might be the Smokies. Um, it might be a place in Africa you went, but somewhere, if you didn't think about nature, natural, something that you really felt at home with, and people were asking themselves that. So you had more and more friends groups being born, friends of a lake, friends of a national park, you know, friends of a species. It was all just snowballing in the 60s, and you could watch membership for groups like Sierra Club, Audubon Society, Wilderness Society, uh, just skyrocket. I mean, not just, quad, we're not talking quadrupling, but 20, 30, 50 times membership increases in the 1960s. Now, another uh, hugely impactful figure 
who provided uh, actually the epigraph for Silent Spring was Albert Schweitzer. Uh, what was his impact on the American environmental movement? No, but any of you remember the name Albert Schweitzer? I had kind of forgot about him since childhood, but Schweitzer um, left Europe, um, Alsace, and went to be a missionary in Africa, um, Christian missionary in what is today Gabon, Africa, but then French Equatorial uh, Africa. And he started taking care of people that had leprosy as part of his missionary work. And he developed a philosophy. He was a genius. He would win the Nobel Prize and all this. But he developed a, after watching Hippopotamus in the river, um, developed a theory that boils down to what he called a reverence for life. And in his reverence for life theory of Schweitzer's that we have to reverence all life, that God created all of this. And what made them powerful really was he mitigated for all of us things like, well, I, I, you know, don't I, can I eat meat? He's, of course, I eat a steak every night. Um, you know, he was very flexible on it, but he was saying just recognize by prayer or something that maybe the way indigenous people did with buffalo, that 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 God's gifting you this food, that this animal, what you're eating, was part of the planet. And he, he would adopt weird creatures, pelicans, and that became pets. He was like a Dr. Doolittle-like guy. But um, he stayed out of politics, except he went on, after he won his Nobel, went on Oslo radio and, and pleaded to the United States, Soviet Union, and Britain to stop testing nuclear weapons. And uh, his radio plea became kinetic. And it was just one factor that led Kennedy into taking this ban, the, the testing movement, seriously. It, it, uh, another person deeply involved with that was Coretta Scott King. Martin Luther King Jr. famously said, and he said it in many different types of iterations, what good does it do to segregate a lunch counter in North Carolina if the milk you're going to drink has strontium-90 in it, which is a, a byproduct of nuclear fallout. So there, even with the civil rights movement, there was this consciousness that, no, I mean, we're all human above everything else and that we've got to make sure what we're eating, what we're drinking, uh, and that we're, we're treating a reverence with life, our rivers and lakes, our fish stocks, our birds, that we have a, a, a stewardship responsibility to make sure that they, they re remain plentiful on the planet. Another hugely impactful figure who interacted with all these people was Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas. Talk about his key role as a friend of the Kennedys, as a friend of Rachel Carson's, as a Supreme Court justice. Uh, what was his impact? I know some of you are lawyers, and a big thing in law is when FDR won his third term, uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, when he won his second term, 1936. And then by early 37, remember FDR's trying to pack the Supreme Court. From the, talk about hubris. He didn't just talk about it. He went and did it. Nine Supreme Court justices, and he wanted to put in six FDR rubber stamps. And he only got shot down. A lot, a lot of Democrats in Texas shot him down and in the South. Um, and so he got flummoxed. But he got his revenge on his critics by appointing William O. Douglas to the Supreme Court. Douglas was a wild boy. And Douglas played poker. He came from Yakima, Washington, was the star at Columbia Law, uh, became the top professor at Yale, was discovered by Joe Kennedy, 
to run the Security Exchange Commission as bankruptcy cases, uh, fraudulent bankruptcy. He would go after companies that were claiming bankruptcy when they weren't bankrupt. So he had a cop mentality to boot. And FDR got to know William O. Douglas because he played poker with him. And Douglas always won all the chips. And FDR admired that mind, the cunning of Douglas. Well, Douglas was a far, um, uh, was, I was asked to sign a, a book about tree huggers here. Douglas came close to being, a, 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 in modern parlance, a tree hugger type. I mean, he came from Washington, and his whole, he really saw himself as kind of a one-man Luddite um, at, from the Supreme Court. And, but particularly, he picked case by case cleverly. Um, so his first big one was saving the CNO Canal. They were going to build a road along the CNO Canal. He hikes 186 miles uh, and brings a group with him uh, and brings two Washington Post editors who were, had written an editorial for the road to see what they would lose if they hike along if the CNO Canal got lost. That success swelled him, and he started doing it everywhere. He protest hiked along Washington coastline and Washington State. He did the Buffalo River uh, canoeing in Arkansas and so made it our first national river. He'd go to Kentucky to stop a dam. Um, he had four wives, uh, and his last wife he married, I believe she was 22 when he was 77. Um, and, um, this is a wild Bill Douglas. Uh, and, you know, I have to laugh when I see Clarence Thomas's wife uh, in, the, in the crosshairs of of um, perhaps conflict of interest because they, the media has no idea. Bill Douglas woke up every morning to perform conflict of interest. <laughs> <laughs> he loved conflict of interest. It's like if people they wouldn't even. But he 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 manipulated anything and everything that he wanted to do. Now there by the end of. Um, you know, by the end of his stays, the longest-serving Supreme Court justice, um, there was a movement to impeach him. He started writing articles in Playboy and these avant-garde magazines, and uh, and particularly, um, you know, he was um, secretly aligned with all of these uh, nonprofit environmental groups. Um, he was a member. He would give them advice. He'd leak what was going to happen on the court in advance. And to his credit, Douglas said, I'm going to bend the law for, in favor of the environment against the corporation. He said that in public, brazenly, meaning I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to bend the law, me. Um, and so, you know, he's, depending on how you look at the world, he's, uh, at the very least, he's a rogue figure. Um, and he, he, there became a counter-revolution to shut Douglas down, and that was Supreme Court Justice Lewis Powell, who had written a letter to the Chamber of Commerce, and Powell said basically that Douglas, Carson, Nader, uh, but they gone, so they they're winning. They're, we're we're being regulated to death, and uh, we've got to create a counter movement because they got a big head start, a you know due to a bunch of reasons that I write about in the book. So from 72, it took about till 80 with Reagan, but then there became a birth of the Cato Institute, American Enterprise, um, Koch Brothers, um, um, Core Foundation, it became all these more conservative think tanks to counter 
this sort of green movement of the 60s. And now you have this kind of, instead of, work, you know, that's energy, independence, environment, energy, and they go like this, um, you know, kind of, uh, but that all started because of Douglas's uh, pushing things to a new dimension. One of his uh, most important impacts was probably on John F. Kennedy. He was a friend of the Kennedy friends. But John F. Kennedy was the first president to recognize air pollution as a problem. And so talk about the circumstances that caused him to realize this is a political issue that I can champion. Big, on air pollution, the big moment was Donora, Pennsylvania, 1948, a town in Pennsylvania the, um, it had an inversion of pollutants from the factories there in the heat, and the air stopped blowing, and so it sank into the town, and the city got ill with respiratory uh, emergencies. Many people died. The word smog is born. Today, the National Smog Museum is in Denora, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and and uh, the word smog took off because there was killer smog in London, and particularly Pasadena, Los Angeles, had thick smog where you couldn't see in L.A. And the problem with clean air in the 50, that was 48, but let's just say the Eisenhower period, um, was the argument over state law versus federal. What good does one state's air law do if the next state's not doing it? By nature, air is going to have to be federal because it's going to blow over into the next state. And there became two clean air movements out through this, one Kennedy fulfilled or was fulfilled in December 63, right after he died, but it was his motion. Um, and that was on stationary pollution, that factories would have to have a standard of smokestack emissions standard. The next Clean Air Act comes with um, Richard Nixon in 1970, and then that went after automobiles, um, which was much harder to do. And that also was tied to getting lead out of our gasoline. Some of you are old enough to remember that was a big deal, the birth of non-leaded gas and getting lead out. And that became bipartisan. The good news is those two clean air acts have cleaned up our air considerably. So our air quality, most places in America are better now than they would have been in 1960. Now, another source of tension throughout this decade of the 60s and early 70s was the tension between the part of the country that needed electricity, which could be provided by the building of dams, versus the environmentalists who saw the ecological fallout caused by the building of the dams. So who won the most battles in this conflict over the building of dams? Well, dams were, are essential to America in the 20th century and 21st. But in the 20th century, you know, FDR built the Grand Coulee Dam, providing electricity for Seattle, uh, built the Tennessee Valley Authority, you know, electrifying the South. But by the time the 40s became the 50s, became the 60s, there were a lot of unnecessary dams built because for a congressman, it was great pork to bring back, 200 million to your district to build a dam on a river that didn't really need to be built. So it, it's, you really have to go case by case on these dams. Some are essential to American energy, hydropower. Some were pork that aren't necessary. Washington, Seattle, as I speak, are taking down, dismantling many of their dams. The one place that there were way too many built is along the Colorado River. 
By the time that river gets to Mexico today, it's a, it's a trickle, if that. That river has been terribly maligned. Um, but the, um, the anti-dam movement was William O. Douglas. That guy never saw a dam he liked. And he was a fly fisherman extraordinaire. And, and he was trying to save every possible fly fishing spot in North America. And further, he went to hike to the, as Supreme Court Justice, he went to the top of the Himalayan mountains and wrote a book in 1951 called The Himalayas and started bringing Buddhist ideas into his law um, thinking. Um, I mean, he's out there. And his hero is Henry David Thoreau, John Muir of the Sierra Club. He's of that ilk. Um, and Douglas will protest any dam that's being built. But um, the, the, there was a bigger battle going on then, which is public dam versus private, private utilities versus public. So that was one fight. And then there were the no dam people, um, which was, uh, uh, the, you know, eventually got such distinguished senators as Frank Church of Idaho on board. If you go to Idaho, you'll see stretches of river undammed. That's because Senator Frank Church fought against them. In Texas, Senator Yarborough, Ralph Yarborough, was the one that did not like dams. Lyndon Johnson made his life off of dams early in his career. Uh, Good old was, pork. Yeah. <laughs> now, in 2010, President Obama named the Department of Interior Building in Washington, D.C., after Stuart Udall who had served as Secretary of the Interior under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson for the full eight years. So what did Stuart Udall do in order to merit that incredible honor? One thing Stuart Udall did, he was Mormon from Arizona. His father was a uh, justice of a, a federal judge in the state of Arizona. It used to be a, a Democratic Party hold of Arizona by a guy named Senator Hayden. And Hayden was in work like this with LBJ. So in 1960, it was just assumed Arizona delegates, you know, Arizona would go to LBJ. Young whips upstart Udall back Jack Kennedy. And lo and behold, um, Kennedy wins Arizona, beats Johnson there. And so Kennedy loves Stuart Udall. That's his guy from the West. And usually an interior, you put a Westerner on. Udall comes in, and Udall's what I'd call a conservation believer. What Udall wanted was what he called a third wave. We had the TR wave. We had the FDR wave. Now we need a third wave of conservation. And from 1961 to 1969, under Kennedy and Johnson, he is probably the most proactive interior secretary a country's ever seen. His big campaigns were to save national parks like North Cascades in Washington, Redwood in California, Canyonlands in Utah. He wrote a book called The Quiet Crisis, which became an instant bestseller with the Jack Kennedy uh, um, you know, info. And I just got Talmadge last night, I just got a really long, nice email from a man named Roger um, uh, Robert Stanton, the first black park ranger, in, and you all hired him, and he was at Tetons, and he went on to become the head of the whole park service. And I, he had sent me some photographs, so I put one of Stanton in the book as the first black park ranger, and he wrote me a nice note last night because he got the book. But you all was doing things like that, modernizing, integrating. 
not less so on Native indigenous people. Uh, the indigenous people uh, of America were, you know, particularly in the Southwest, uranium was king, and often they were working the uranium mines without proper, um, you know, um, work hazards taken mm-hmm. into consideration. I should add that out West, for Mexican-Americans, the big leader in the environment was Cesar Chavez, who was fighting against insecticides, pesticides for farm workers. His whole shtick, Chavez, is anti-DDT in the end. He's a child of, of um, or, you know, organizer of um, following the footsteps of Carson. Now, let's talk about Lyndon Johnson uh, for a minute. And, and that is, you say in the book, he's incredibly underappreciated for all that he did, pushing through litigation as only he could. But how much of his efforts on the environmental front were spurred by his wife, Lady Bird, who made this her main preoccupation as as, uh, First Lady? You know, I get to study not just presidents, but their marriages, which is a little odd to look at anybody's marriage up close. Uh, They're all different. I wrote, uh, I edited Ronald Reagan's diaries, and there is no understanding Ronald Reagan without Nancy Reagan. There just isn't. Uh, They were that simpatico. Uh, Lyndon and Lady Bird were like that, a little bit different, but um, Lyndon liked Texas ranch stewardship. He had an ability to see if one of you had a ranch, are you taking good care of the land? And he'd love like Boone Pickens did up in... uh, you know, when he was up in, before he passed away up by uh, Amarillo, repairing land to, you know, with the tall grasses and all that, that's Lyndon. He'd be very familiar here. He is familiar in Texas, his view of what it constitutes good land stewardship. Um, Lady Bird was an environmentalist, which is different. Um, she grew up on East Texas on the Louisiana border and for whatever her reasons in childhood, she became enamored with all the swamp creatures of the big thicket and all of the flora and fauna. And so there's a strand throughout her life of loving the natural world. And so when she became first lady, she thought about working with young kids in education for a minute, but quickly shifted to say, I'm going to become the, the, the beautification person uh, about roads, about getting rid of an ugliness out of America. She was a little bit critical of Eisenhower's interstate highway system because not that it was built, but that it was built at wrong places. But she felt that these interstates destroyed Hartford, Connecticut, Storyville in New Orleans, parts of old San Antonio, et cetera. So she wasn't, uh, got very interested in wildflowers, green areas along highways, anti-rubbish zones, and then with Udall, she would travel everywhere. She went down the whole Rio Grande River in a raft as first lady with Stuart Udall. She went, you know, fly fishing in Wyoming. She went hiking in the Teton. She would know there would be no redwoods of Northern Californian parks if, if Lady Bird didn't intervene. So my admiration for Lady Bird went up a lot only because I never there. Lyndon wouldn't have done the things he did without her. Uh, because he 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 wasn't his top thing. Only FDR and TR take the environment conservation and elevate it as being that super important. The three presidents I deal with are a step lower than that, but they do a lot. Of the, I mean, they're together. They create. They all, and it's very bipartisan. You know, the Endangered Species Act 
under Nixon, it passes 92 to nothing in the Senate. Not one senator was opposed to it. Now, that might surprise you because it seems very contentious at times today, but that's not because of the original act. It's because of the interpretation of the law. There are some people that believe the original Endangered Species Act was meant in spirit and in legal language, but certainly in spirit to be chrismatic animals that all Americans wanted to save the manatee. They wanted to save whooping cranes. They wanted to save the bald eagle. They wanted to, that we wanted to save these great species, but then it became a way to stop construction because somebody would find a rare three-toed lizard that would shut down development or a snail dart, a tiny fish shutting down a big project in Tennessee. And then it became contentious, but that's not till the Carter and beyond years. Early Endangered Species Act was very, very bipartisan. The, the food fight that's going on is about the interpretation of it and one side's abuse of it, the environmentalist abusing it. And, um, on one side and the other side, you know, saying, no, it did mean all flora and fauna. You know, one of the tough parts of your book to read is, you know, here's Lady Bird gung-ho on the environment and Lyndon's beside her and getting this important legislation passed, but along comes Vietnam and this national reaction of opposition to the war and his escalation of the war. So how were their environmental efforts hampered by reason of the unpopularity of the Vietnam War? Well, it's a great question, Talmadge. Um, you, he always does such an amazing job. I'd like to give a, Talmadge a round of applause for what he does. As he, he's unique. He reads the book carefully. He probably knows my book better than I do, <laughs> so it's scary. And, uh, and, and he brings us all together like that, and that's, that's exceedingly, um, exceedingly special. Um, you know, it's just the um, environmental, um, you know, one of the things that's key to keep in mind is Vietnam is a disruptor agent for this whole era. And Lyndon doesn't get proper credit. It's hard to, you know, like people say, why could, well, who cares if he's created wild and scenic rivers, which he did, or signed a wilderness act that saved 10 million roadless acres of wilderness, which he did, when you know, he's spraying Agent Orange over the jungles of Vietnam. This is not an environmental precedent. The answer to that is Lyndon was an American environmental president. He wanted to save American places. He did not give a damn about Southeast Asia. Um, now, meaning he wasn't an international environmentalist, okay? I mean, uh, and, uh, and nor was Lady Bird. Ironically, it's Nixon who brings the environment um, internationally uh, at the 1972 Stockholm. And Nixon sent Ruckel's house, head of EPA, uh, because we had the most far-reaching environmental protection standards in the planet, bar none. We did more with clean air, clean water, endangered species. We had created NEPA, environmental impact statements. We were saving marine mammals more than any other country. So our representative went to the UN, William Ruckel's house, and the entire United Nations booed him, wouldn't let him talk. And out of the audience came the great anthropologist, Margaret Mead, and she got to the mic and said, Be let him talk. 
They've done the, I know, I don't care what you think of Vietnam, the Americans have done more on the environment than anybody. And then Ruckel's house was able to speak and got a great reception. But by, but we were leading the world on all of this uh, and everybody else was following us. And Nixon signed amazing agreements like acid rain kind of agreements with Canada, bipartisan deals. And he was very engaged. And the reason Nixon got engaged, because people were demanding it first and foremost, but also he became president and only eight days after he enters the White House, the Santa Barbara oil spill happens. And I was telling Talmadge, I mean, we read, historians read other people's mail for a living. And at the Nixon Library, you'd be amazed how many Republican donors to Nixon in California were like, what's the hell's going on? Meaning, not in my backyard. You know, people from Carmel or Long Beach or Dana Point or Laguna Beach are saying, you know, we, we got to shut these oil rigs off here. We, we bought our beach home. And Nixon was responsible to those Republican donors, heard them answered them, went to California, still wasn't elevating the environment too much. But by the summer of 69, when Neil Armstrong goes to the moon, the Cuyahoga River caught fire in Ohio and Lake Erie was called dead. And, uh, and that combo made Nixon realize we got to do something. There was one thing Nixon hated more than any creature, person, or, or ghost and that is a man named Ed Muskie of Maine. <laughs> I've written a lot about Nixon. His hatred of Muskie is ex- it's extraordinary hatred. <laughs> and I started to get find out why Muskie every day, uh, virtually every single day as a senator, would criticize Nixon on the environment daily and denounce daily his conduct of foreign policy, particularly his handling of Vietnam, Cambodia, daily. And so um, Nixon tells John Ehrlichman, his domestic advisor, who is an environmental lawyer from Seattle, um, I will sign environmental stuff. I'll do it. Uh, you, you, work it out if you, you work it out with Scoop Jackson of Washington, who was pro-Vietnam War and a moderate Democrat. You and Scoop figure it out, and I'll sign it. But Muskie, if I don't want a word from Muskie or his staff, he's not allowed to come to any events I'm at. I never want to be, see him in a photo having anything to do with any of my, you know. So Ehrlichman is from Seattle and Scoop Jackson's from Seattle. And I would say in the book, the Seattle people got together bipartisan between Scoop Jackson and uh, John Ehrlichman. And they started creating this legislation, most famously for January 1, 1970, NEPA, National Environmental Policy Act, which is the birth of impact statements. And then you have the first Earth Day and, you know, things start escalating. Mm-hmm. We have time for some questions from the audience. Yes, sir. Would you stand up so everybody can hear your question, please? Oh, it's just massive. See, I, I, I think personally, and I'm letting you know from studying history a long time, I think Kennedy had a very decent balance as president on budgets, um, investing in technology, um, doing national seashores. Kennedy creates, you know, Cape Cod, national seashore, Padre Island, Point Reyes, you know, all of this stuff. But um, Johnson comes in with those 67 senators, and he just signs away. 
I mean, you go to the LBJ library in Austin, you can look at the walls. And a lot of this stuff shouldn't have been signed. It, it didn't have bipartisan support or it was very one-sided it, and it wasn't budgeted per- properly. So you get a kind of train wreck with the Great Society with too much legislation. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't stand back and say this worked and this worked and this worked. Um, you know, Medicaid and Medicare, NPR, PBS, Wild and Scenic Rivers, these new national parks. He, uh, LBJ did the Appalachian Trail and C- C- Pacific Crescent Trail, this trail system. Uh, um, but there was also just a lot of frivolous in, in legislation passed during that period that's, uh, that's actually um, was, was beyond overkill. Mm-hmm. Ray Washburn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and before you answer, Goodbye to River is written by TCU professor John Graves. How about those frogs? Go ahead. <laughs> uh, John Graves was a brilliant writer, conservationist. And in, in, in this regard, he is the first. He's the first to question dams. And that are they necessary? I mean, what 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 is when it's he writes about goodbye to river? Is it what's what, what's a river worth? Is it worth killing the the this or keeping it where I can canoe the length of it? And it's r- brilliantly written book. And I did not know I had read it. It's a it's the Texas conservation classic, but I didn't realize Lady Bird Johnson in particular was so enamored with it. So, um, and Johnson's kids have told me, I mean, it's, and so did Liz Carpenter, who worked for Lady Bird, that that book was part of why Linden, in a state of the union, out of nowhere, starts declaring wild and scenic rivers, which are groups of rivers in America that are undammed, and we have them today. And, uh, you know, it became fierce battles, but each, some states have a lot of undammed rivers, and, uh, and so, yeah, Graves is a major figure, um, and that book is a, is one of the better. I put it on a top ten list of all time books on environment um, conservation. That's great. Any other questions? Yes. Great question. Robert Bullard teaches down in Houston. Professor sociology. Um, Bullard. Um, well, I argue in my book, I mean, the idea of environmental justice um, really emerges in the 60s um, when, you know, Cesar Chavez was doing his protest. Uh, Martin Luther King died at the Memphis garbage workers strike. A big moment for that movement um, or, the, or, or the coining of environmental justice is the creation of the Black Caucus in 1971. Uh, out of the Black Caucus members, there was a congressman, Ron Dullums, out of Oakland, who really honed in on this um, in, in a very real way. And then it was getting PCBs out of, out of poor neighborhoods and asbestos out of poor schools. Some of you might remember when you had to get rid of asbestos in buildings and all of this. And most dramatically, we in a highly adult, we're 6% of the world's population using up what, 40% of the world's natural resources. But we put our industrial dump, we dump things places. We tend to call them cancer alleys of some kind or another. And they are predominantly in poor neighborhoods of people of color. 
Black American communities, um, Native American and Latino communities. And that's just a fact. I mean, it's the, in the, you know, I, there are different spring moments where like Love Canal outside of Niagara Falls when the school's built on a toxic site and all of this. But now environmental justice is um, a forefront of um, people's environmental thinking. And a lot of the groups of the 60s are now turning to environmental justice. In the 60s, there was still that Theodore Roosevelt, um, particularly white male um, outdoor enthusiast meeting to save a mountain or save a river by the, let's call it the 1980s, that's shifting more and more to this environmental justice movement. And Bullard, who lives here in Texas, is the academic progenitor of it. He's He's taken that and turned it into a serious field of study and almost created a, a you know, a profession unto himself. He now, I know, is writing his own memoir. Right. Any other questions? Yes. Both are hugely important. Um, I write all about Iron, Iron Eyes Cody, with the name of that... The, uh, I hate to do it's his pictures in the book as Talmadge knows. I write about him quite a bit. Do you, any how many of you remember those commercials of a of an Indian crying and he's looking and there's garbage in a river? We're gonna age ourselves here, but a lot of <laughs> a lot of you remember it. It was run a lot. It was pretty hard to miss. Um well, I'm here to disappoint you. That was not a Native American. He, that was an actor from Sicily. <laughs> Uh, who had played in like some B Western movies as an Indian, and they put makeup on him, and uh, and he and, and it had a big effect. It was a great uh, a great thing. The um, what Trammell does him with planting of trees is just really always important, and, I, and it's actually a great thing for young people. I'll tell students at Rice if they're worried about climate change and they feel they can't do anything, you know, they can go plant some trees. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. You know, sometimes people will mock somebody and say, well, well, well then go save a whale if you're so concerned. Or, no, I mean, really, there are projects where you can plant trees and shelter belts and things. I mean, if you have a feel for that natural world and want to do something positive. Uh, um, so I really respect what Trammell has done with his program. It's remarkable. And with the with the... We were fooled by Iron Eyes Cody, but that Keep America a Beautiful campaign was really a corporate campaign to, uh, to you know, recycle, pick up litter. It was actually meant as a, um, a public service announcements for corporate responsibility to the environment. And out of a lot of that is why we have more garbage cans places. Um, we have recycling, you know, for plastics and bottles, and it's all growing out of that campaign. All right. I want to respect everybody's schedule, and we want to say thanks to Doug Brinkley. I hope you enjoy his book. Uh, Thank you, guys. Since I'm a baby boomer, born in 1953, Doug Brinkley's new book, Silent Spring Revolution took me back in time to my formative years and clarified how challenging the period from 1960 to 1973 was on the environmental front, as well as the major tensions on the Cold War 
and the civil rights fronts. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.